0: All right, so we are on page 49, which is chapter 7 in the study guide. Last time we talked about chapter 6, I'm going to show you there's a, a structure to chapter 5, 6, and 7, and there's a, there's a nice flow. There's something about it that struck me as odd was that I have the study guide broken up by the topics that Paul's addressing, and this one was weird because he talks about lawsuits and sex issues with sex all at the same time. Which I was like, why not just break them up in an elegant way? He kind of bounces back and forth. And then the more I studied this, the more I'm like well, actually this makes more sense. So this is how I viewed it. He talks about the issues with sex, remember the guy who had his father's wife. Then he talks about law and then he comes back. Which struck me as weird. Actually I think the flow of thought is that in chapter five he's covering both sex and law. Because remember the the kind of incest that this man is participating in was handled by the criminal courts. So in Roman law, I had both a criminal court and a civil court. And he's saying, you all didn't actually handle this correctly. You didn't judge it yourself. But the world would have actually judged it. So that's where they're actually both connected together. And then he says, by the way, I have another issue related to law. And that's when he carries on into chapter six, about half of chapter six. And so it's almost as if he's saying, here you had this big issue, which you couldn't bother yourselves to judge. But then here's a bunch of trivial issues that you bothered to accept to deal with. Okay, so it's, it's, it's like you've gotten this all back around. So this, this actually flows a bit more than it may appear. And then he comes back into Chapter 7 and he's going to talk about more issues related to that. So when you think about it like that, I felt like it flowed more. The, the One of the things, too, is that when you read about how people handled these cases in court... you can see more and more why Paul saw this is so damaging. There's a a guy named Quintilian, and he has this thing on rhetoric. And he says, in court, your rhetoric should include blackening your opponent's character. This was a normal thing that they would do. So if that's what they're doing, and they're doing it the way that the Romans did it, this could be highly damaging to the church. It wasn't focused on just the case. It was actually worse than that. So that's why Paul is so upset with the way they're handling this. All right, so we're going to get into Chapter 7, and Mike's going to lead us in prayer, and then we'll get into that.
1: Okay, The so Lord God, we are so grateful for this opportunity that we have to come together. We've been studying your Word. Uh, we know your Word is truth, and we just pray that we will have open hearts and minds to be able to
2: uh, see the truth and make application in our lives. So grateful for Luke, for his study, and
1: for his willingness. Uh, Guide this study, and we just pray that our comments today will be made in such a way uh, that they'll be thought provoking, uh, that they'll be delving into and seeking truth, and that uh, we might come away with a better understanding.
0: So, I want you to imagine that you're watching TV and they have a panel of experts, and the experts are going to weigh in on the question of what will bring the downfall of America. So they go to the first expert and he says, well, the downfall is going to be caused by big government. And then the second expert says, no, actually it's going to be big business. And the next expert says it's going to be the Democrats, the next expert says it's going to be the Republicans. The next one says it's going to be racism, and then the sixth one says it's going to be political correctness. And then you get to the seventh expert, and he says, "Now the downfall of America is going to be caused by a lack of monogamy in marriage. Now, if you remember that game you played as a kid, where it was something like, what is not like the other? Right? If you were to play that game, you'd be like, yeah, that seventh expert is not like the other. He's probably the most right. There's a book written in 1934 by a guy named J.D. Unwin, and he looked at 80 tribes and six historical civilizations. And he tried, to, he tried to answer one simple question. Does a culture's ideas of se- sexual liberation predict its success or collapse? And he wrote this 700 page book that he called his summary of his findings. The 700 page book was not the whole thing, it was just a summary. He said it's going to take seven volumes to cover everything. There are two things that are noteworthy in this book. One, He said that there is not one example, not one, of throughout human history of a society moving from uncivilized to civilized unless it had a predominant view of monogamy in marriage. Two, he found that if three consecutive generations abandoned sexual restraint built around the protections of marriage and fidelity, the society collapsed. And he said it was very consistent. He found none of them could survive it if they had it three generations in. And so, summarizing all he's saying, he's saying, when a culture fails to restrain its sexual instincts, people think less about securing the future and instead compromise the stability, productivity, and well being of the next generation in pursuit of sexual pleasure for themselves. So they stop focusing on the long term picture or Well, we've we've used several times in this class the word transcendent. Instead of thinking about the big picture stuff, they're just focused on the here and now. And that's why he says that this leads to this issue. And what's strange about it is that this guy's not religious. Matter of fact, in the book, he even talks about how, well, some might say there's a religious argument under here. And he kind of puts it down and says religion says one thing and then it says another thing. So he just kind of throws that out. He's not a religious person. He's just saying this is just what the data shows. So we're going to talk about that because it, it really fits a lot of what saying. Like We need to be focused on these transcendent things, and that will change the way that we view marriage and sexual issues. And so we're going to do, it's chapter 7, like I said, it's page 49 of the book. We're going to start off by, I'm just going to have it read the text. So if you want to open your book and just highlight some things, if you see something you think is noteworthy or have questions on. And maybe this will work. Actually, Maybe it won't work. So I'm gonna have to have somebody read it. All right. Actually, uh, I'm gonna go to the next slide, so it's not playing in the background. Uh, somebody want to read First Corinthians seven for me? I can, we can get you a mic too. We will get you a mic. <laughs> carry well. <laughs> oh wait, we got a hand raise up here. You want to carry? You want to? You want to arm vessel for it? Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Carrie. Now with regard to
3: the issues you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of immoralities, each man should have relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. A husband should give to his wife her sexual rights, and likewise a wife to her husband. It is not the wife who has the rights to her own body, but the husband. In the same way, It is not the husband who has the rights to his own body, but the wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual agreement for a specified time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then resume your relationship, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that everyone was as I am, but each has his own gift from God, one this way, another that. To the unmarried and widows, I say that it is best for them to remain as I am. But if they do not have self-control, let them get married. For it is better to marry than to burn with sexual desire. To the married, I give this command: my I, of the Lord. A wife should not force a husband. But if she does, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I am not the Lord. If a brother has a wife who is not a believer, and she is happy to live with him, he should not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer, and he is happy to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified because of the wife and the unbelieving wife because of her husband. Otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever wants a divorce, let it take place. In these circumstances, the brother or sister is not bound. God has called you in peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will bring your husband to salvation? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will bring your wife to salvation? nevertheless as the lord has assigned to each one as god has called each person so must he be i give this sort of direction in all the churches was anyone called after he had been circumcised he should not try to undo his circumcision was anyone called who is uncircumcised he should not get circumcised circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing instead Keeping God's commandments is what counts. Let each one remain in that situation in life which he was called. Were you called as a slave? Do not worry about it, but if indeed you are able to be free, make the most of the opportunity. For the one who was called in the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. In the same way, the one who was called as a free person is Christ's slave. You are all with a price. Do not become slaves of me. In whatever situation is called, brothers and sisters, let me remain in it with God. With regard... With regard to the...
0: Carrie, I think you just got canceled. <laughs> <laughs> with regard to the question about people
3: who have never married... I have no command from the Lord, but I give my opinion as one shown mercy by the Lord to be trustworthy. Because of the impending crisis, I think best for you to remain as you are. The one bound to a wife should not seek divorce. The one released from a wife should not seek marriage. But if you marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face difficult circumstances, and I am trying to spare you such problems. And I say this, brothers and sisters, the time is short. So then those who have wives should be as those who have none. Those with tears like those not weeping. Those who rejoice like those not rejoicing. Those who die like those without possessions. Those who use the world as though they were not using it to the full, for the present shape of this world is passing away. And I don't need to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the things of the world, how to please his wife, and he is divided. An unmarried woman for a virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, to be holy both in body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how to please her husband. I am saying this for your benefit, not to place a limitation on you, but so that without distraction you may be of noble and constant service to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is acting inappropriately toward his virgin, if she is a the of youth, and it seems necessary, he should do what he wishes. He does not sin, let him marry. But the man who is firm in his commitment, and is under no necessity, but has control over his will, and has decided in his own mind to keep his own virgin, does well. So then the one who marries his own virgin does well, but the one who does not does better. That life is found as long as her husband is living. That if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, only someone in the world. But in my opinion, she will be happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I, too, have the spirit of God.
0: <clears throat> All right. Thank you. So what kind of things did you notice? Or what kind of questions did you have? See, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you a lot of questions then. <laughs> yes, Alan. In,
4: in a situation of world crisis or church persecution, it might be better to stay focused than to marry. And yet yeah, I also realize that's how you get the comfort and support many times. So I'd like to comment on that.
0: So when you said, "I was trying to figure out how, where, how much of that was the question," so you said, "In an issue where there's something happening in society, it would make sense to not get married," which made sense. And then you said, "Comfort and focus." So what? That was the part.
4: Sense, so
0: on that? yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, I have okay, yeah, that's a really good point. There's two sides to that. So, Jamie and then Leanne, yeah, yeah you know, verse 15. I'm kind of
4: confused. Like, I don't permission for and you know, a pass on
0: divorce. I think I have spent in we, we were just Ariel and I were just talking about this. I have spent a ridiculous amount of time on this chapter in particular on verse 15. And and it's it's a bit sort I'm going I want to hear what Leanne's going to say and I'll tell you where I've wound up landing on that cuz I agree it 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 really feels like it doesn't fit in a certain sense. Yeah. It doesn't have anything to
5: do
6: with that. Is so. that
0: okay? No, that's totally fine. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's one of the things that's difficult because the, I think there's good reason to think that there is a famine during this time, and and I say that for several reasons. One is that there's a thing called the grain curator was only elected when there was a run on grain and they didn't have enough grain. And the reason they would elect this person is he would distribute the grain as opposed to, which prevents the issue where it looks like grain prices are shooting up and everybody holds on to it when you have mobs. He was elected three times during this time. So it wasn't just, it, there were several famines. Uh, in Egypt, Egypt was kind of the backup source for grain, and it winds up having tax defaults during this time. And other writers said there's a famine, so we, they're in big trouble. So it does seem like he's probably responding to that. The word for, for present distress is the word ananki, which means can actually mean famine, it's used several times like that. So I think that's what's going on. So there are just some things happening in their society. However, and this, so that's one side of it. The other side of it, though, is that Paul's advice applies to every situation, too, at the same time, right? I think he, you could say time is short, meaning, like, we've got to use this time we have on Earth, so we don't have a lot of it. So think about the bigger picture, the long-term picture, not just the short-term picture. It's a little bit hard to parse out, because I think you could, there's a local situation, it feels like, also, he's got principles that apply to every situation. Personally, I'm not 100% sure. I was going to say... Yeah, I love that because in one week, for now, the next two lessons are going to be topical lessons. So next, on Wednesday, we're going to talk about making sense out of sex and gender in God's story. And one after that is going to talk about the, the gift of singleness. And people say, that does not sound like a gift I want. Okay, well, uh, Paul says that's actually the preferred situation. So that's a nice lead-in for that. Because I do think that's sometimes what we assume. We assume, we make a certain assumptions about what single Christians are like. Like that's just a life of loneliness. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. Although to Alan's point, I mean, your spouse can bring you a, a can bring you a lot of peace, but we also Jesus redefines the family radically too. So there's there's two sides to that. Yes, Mike? So this
1: problem. Yes, I know the argument is, well, Paul's an apostle, and Paul says that at the end of Corinthians that, you know, everything he said is from Christ. But there has
3: to be an distinction that he's trying to make, otherwise he would not bring this up. And so I'm just curious
1: how that plays into.
0: And actually, Mitch had brought that up in the first class, which is why we are doing these out of order, because that's, <laughs> that's not that you you can still talk about it. So I really, if, Bob, you want to talk about it, that's fine, too. I, we still got to answer Jamie's question, by the way, too.
5: But every day, we're faced with decisions that we need to make. And a lot of those decisions uh, have uh, uh, environmental or current uh, state uh, drivers. Oh, I know that's not what I was thinking of, but I think we can this. And, and so it's giving me his
0: Yeah, and the thing is, is, like there are there are transcendent principles that apply to absolutely every situation and they don't change at all. At the same time, it's like you're saying, though, there are local issues and situations where you have to make a judgment call, right? I remember somebody making a distinction. I thought this was really wise. He said there are straight line issues and there are jagged line issues. Straight line issues is where you, you can take a biblical principle and you can just apply it. It's a very, it. It just applies directly, and it's easy. And there's other ones where it's like, well... There's multiple things going on and you've got multiple principles and you're trying to figure out how to handle a situation like that. Like voting might be one of those. you say, well, just vote for the, the good one. Well, what do you do? When is the, I mean, you look at both and you're like, I, I don't, I, neither of these options are good options. What do you do in that case? You could just not vote at all, but that's not a great option either. It's like none of the options are great. And that's why the situation is more like a jagged line issue. You, you're still using the principles. We're not saying it's just a free for all, but we're not saying it's perfectly a clear line either for some of that. Can I
4: respond
0: question with? Yes. Okay, you can see we're not really following a real clean pattern because we still haven't even touched Jamie's question, so go ahead. <laughs>
4: You may have to see this you want to have the internal struggles of immaturity to start with. And so maybe, and I can't see it now, but I can see it in you.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Can you imagine Imagine the difficulties you have as a young married couple? And then throw in uh, something like, let's say, there is a famine going on. If that's the local situation he's talking about that's just going to make everything far more difficult, especially if they're planning on having kids early on in marriage. That, that's going to be extremely, extremely difficult. That's a good point. So, question about chapter 7, verse 15. So, I'll, I'm, so I'm going to set this up for why I think this, this looks weird. First of all, so you kind of see the problem. Paul talks about whether or not you should divorce. And pretty much in every case, he says no. It's like he goes through each situation, he's like, no, no. No, it's all, I mean, it's almost how it reads. And then he comes back at the end, and he says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. At 739. So he says that after. And then you have verse 15. And he's talking there specifically about when a, there's a marriage between a believer and an unbeliever, and the unbeliever is not content to stay in the marriage. And he says, in that case, he says, they are not enslaved. The believer is not enslaved. But the wording is actually a little bit weird in here, too that feels like it doesn't fit, right? You, f- you see the rest of this, and it's like, what is going on here? And then it gets weirder, okay, because the word there for enslaved in the Greek, it's the word for slave, like the same word that's used for slaves. I looked up all 138 instances, as far as I could tell, of the verb and noun for the word for slave, doulos and lao, to figure out if it's ever used for marriage in any other case. I could not find any of them. So that might like, well that's even weirder. Okay, so what's he talking about here? And it occurred to me what I think might be going on here is that he's not dealing with there's something else in the situation we're not seeing. So I think what he's actually saying is that you're not enslaved in the sense that you're not enslaved to the the religious position of the other spouse. Okay? So it's not like it's like one of those situations where this person's saying, If you if you want to live with me, you're gonna have to give up on Christ. Because he later goes on and talks about how, he said, do not be slaves of men. In the very context, that's the same word. So I think that's more the situation. I don't think he's necessarily saying you have the right to go and remarry and just, you know, move on. I think he's saying, listen, if you're thinking about abandoning Christ to go and keep your marriage, that's not what you should do. And that would fit that other section where he goes on and he starts talking about He uses slaves several times. That's my favorite. Bob and the Dean.
5: If you look at verses 4 and 5, where it's dealing with uh, the rights of the husband over the wife and the wife over the husband in certain areas, uh, they're bound not to deprive. And And so, if your unbelieving spouse leaves, you can no longer fulfill that duty, that responsibility, Which you are bound in, and so there
0: might be a connection there. Yeah, and especially when you read that and he talks about how connected you are and how high of a view Paul holds on marriage, it it's like, well, what do you do when that spouse isn't even going to want to be around? And now I'm stuck. Like Paul, you just said all the stuff I'm supposed to do in marriage. He owns my body and I own his. What am I going to do? Right? It feels like you're stuck, and that's why I think Paul tries to resolve that there. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it, exactly. And he uses two words in there to refer to the divorce or leave, how it, depending on how it's translated. Yeah, it's a little bit difficult, too, because when you look at the way those words were used in that, in that time and period, they would use both of those words for divorce. At the same time, you also get this weird state, though, because you go back and you read Jesus' view on divorce, and he says, when somebody gets a divorce, so he's almost like saying, well, that is a divorce in a certain sense. But if they go on and they have sex, then they commit adultery. So it's like, he says one, but then, but then you know, acknowledges it in one sense, but then doesn't acknowledge it in a different sense. So there's, there's that aspect as well. Alan? Oh, wait. i sorry. I thought you had the... I saw your hand or something. I thought you had a mic. You've got to weigh in now. I'm just kidding. But I also feel like... I was told Ariel this. I, I feel like after studying this over and over and over again... I mean, I have pages that I have written on this just me trying to make sense out of First Corinthians 7 because there's just weird twists and turns and stuff that why did, he, why did he switch to this and then he switches back? And some of it makes sense. I don't feel like we got to a place where I can just put all together in this nice little elegant thing and tie it on a bow and answer every question. I'm not there yet, but I also feel like I'm converging on a solution. I'm just not sure exactly how some of the parts fit. And I, I think overall, overall it seems like it's... It's better than all the alternatives I have. I'll I'll put it that way. Mike.
1: One of the hardest things that I struggle with in this section is that it seems like in verse 12, he is starting to make a distinction when he talks about a brother with an unbelieving, or a a, a, Christian wife with an unbelieving husband. So, as I read this, my mind seems think that, okay, everything he's talking about around this section is about a Christian husband and wife. But then in the beginning of verse 12, he's talking about here's a different scenario where he's got a Christian, you know, this is a new thing. This Christianity is a new thing, right? Right. Maybe the husband or maybe the wife has become a Christian and the other one says I want nothing to do with this. And is, you know, so my mind goes, is there a sense of allowing someone to become Unequally yoked. If we, if they remain in that position, or is this is this a situation where you no, know, if if there's an opportunity, or, or if one of them says, absolutely not, I cannot live this high fire, and you don't, want, you don't have to remain unequally yoked. You don't have to be in this bondage. And and because of this, it can it can change. I don't know, but it just seems. Verse twelve introduces a brand new. Scenario that maybe the
0: rest of it is not So I think you're, you're right about the, the way he divides this up. I'm trying to look, because I, I noted that as well, that if you look through it in detail, you'll realize that he specifically tells you what scenario he's talking about, and he breaks it up very nicely. So he starts verses 1 through 7, with regards to the issues you wrote about. So apparently the Corinthians are asking about should we just refrain from sex, presumably even in marriage? So he specifically says, that's the situation I'm, I'm addressing. In verses 8 and 9, he talks about, to the unmarried and widows. Again, specifically says the scenario. Verses 10 through 11 talks, to the married, so now he switches there. And then, verses 12, he says, to the rest. Now, this is where he's switching away from the believing couple to the one where one is a believer and one's not a believer. In verse 12 he addresses, he starts with the topic of, if the unbeliever is happy to live with her, so that's what the unbeliever is willing to stick around. Then he flips in verse 15, he says, okay, but what do you do in a situation when the unbeliever is not willing to be with her? So he's very, very clear about that and the divisions. And I think that's, this is really, I'm glad you brought this up, Mike, because I think it's key because when you look at some of the stuff that may seem weird, you have to see, well, what situation is he talking about? And that was one of the reasons I came to the view that I think he's talking more about the spouse who is thinking about going back to their unbelieving spouse, which it seems like the only way that's ever going to work is if you give up on the faith. Because that seems like that's what caused the division. And in that section is the section where he goes on, verses 21 through 24, and starts talking about, don't be a slave to man. So that, when I saw that, I was like, oh wait, that's the part of the same section. And it's the same word that he says, do not be enslaved then I was like, okay, that, that makes a lot more sense. Then say so try to apply that up to one of the previous parts. Because I don't think Paul's saying marriage is slavery. That would that would be a pretty dark view. Uh, so I, I got Nina and Craig. Um, I know it's hard to wrap my own brain around this. When we did a study of Ephesians
7: 5, you know, marriage is to be a above all you know, marriage. Live this out, and live um, uh, faithfully to our spouse, but at the end of the day, it is not the end of all. Like, it's not the objective to ensure that my marriage survives above all things. That's not the goal. It is my relationship with, with Christ and maintain that above all things. And so I think, looking at this passage, if if the objective is i got to get this marriage together, no matter what. that's what it's all about. And we think we are, and we will satisfy some of them temporarily
3: for a limited period of time. At the end of the day, I'm trying to get my wife to
7: provide for her, to lead her to the one who will completely and fully and eternally satisfy her. Um, and so I think that makes, to me, at least it makes 15 a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not easy. But it makes it easier to go, what's the goal here, the objective Because who knows whether, you know, whether that wife will save her husband. Who knows if keep keeping together, I may actually be the thing that influences her to become bound to the
0: one that she really thinks to be. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And I think it's exactly where he's going. Because what well, Paul keeps trying to remind themselves is you've got to think about the transcendent. You've got to think about how this life is this little tiny sliver of time. And it's just the beginning of this long timeline that goes on forever. And when you see that, you're going you're to have different decisions on this stuff. Because people think, well, what if I'm not married? What, what, look at all this fear of missing out. Look at what i missing out. It's like, Paul's saying, you're missing out on nothing. Okay? And the long, big picture, you're missing out on nothing. Which is why he goes on, and he talks about in this section about, if you were called as a slave, don't worry about it. Okay, if you, if you, if you can be free, that's fine. But why does it not matter? Because you're a slave to Christ. And Christ set you free. In the big picture, it's nothing. I mean, in the big picture, I'm a married man, but I'm really just a person who's married for this tiny little instant of time. That changes everything. And somebody else had their hand night on. I feel like he's talking to the Corinthians,
2: you know, Mike said, very early in the process of the church. So the book that you stated when we first started. I feel like he's in, like, the third generation trying to sort it all out. So there's some very specific things at specific times. I don't envy him trying to sort all of this out for everybody, but he's trying to separate a new generation of people, of Christians. And in Malachi 2, verse 13, he said, Did he not make them one with the portion of the Spirit in their union?" So he's trying to say this new generation of people that I'm trying to sort out from all of this mess from the past is going to have a third person involved in their marriage and it's going to be the spirit. So those of you who don't want to be part of that, there's nothing we can do to make you part of that. But if you really, and that's why he goes on to tell the widows, If you marry, marry only in the Lord. So his starting point here is different, I think, from our minds because our starting point is us in Christ with the Spirit involved in our marriages. And so I think he's trying to separate all of that out and say, here, here's from here, and that's why he has to go back and forth. From well, the Lord said, but I tell you, it's not good. But, so he's dealing with a very specific people in
0: a very specific situation. Yeah, this is, so First Corinthians is written about 54-55 So we're only talking 20 years, 20-25 years out from when Jesus died. It's, this is very, very early. And Corinth I
6: mean,
0: is. Yeah, and, yeah, Corinth is a max. This is, this is very true. Uh, I see Lisa. i i agree with that the the situation is very different in in many ways like our cultures are very different in some ways they're shockingly ways, they're quite different so i agree with you for example there's a a speech that plutarch records it's called the kadavastakas and it's a it was a speech that was given after a couple had just gotten married and when you see this you're going to realize how much more sense it makes that paul is making some of the points he does he says there are two noteworthy things in that speech one The woman is told that she has to have sex only with her husband. Plutarch goes on and he says, but she has to accept that her husband will have sex with other women. And that's just normal. That's okay. Now, Paul, this is totally different than Paul's situation, he says, the woman owns the man. And the man owns the woman. Now, the man-owns-the-woman part, they'd be like, yeah, that's right, okay? That culture would have been okay with that. Adultery was prosecuted as a crime against the man if the woman committed, uh, if a man committed adultery with the woman because they looked at her as property. And Paul's saying, no, no, you see, it's, it's a two-way street. It's not a one-way street, it's a two-way street. Here's a second thing that Plutarch mentions in uh, that speech. That the woman is supposed to accept the gods of her husband. Think about it. If a woman accepted that when she got married. Then she becomes a Christian. She's well, what am I supposed to do now? Like, that's what we kind of agreed on, right? Yeah, we're hitting, we're hitting our heads now on this. And I kind of said that. That was a promise I made. Now what am I supposed to do? And Paul's saying, let them go. But don't let Jesus go. <laughs> so I, I think in that case, it fits a little bit better. Somebody else, I don't know.
4: saw over that, they cried over that, they did that, but there was a real big reason for that, and that is where they would be led. And now we come to this, and he's almost saying, okay, the same thing, you've got to be careful who you marry, you've got to be careful who you stayed with, but with Christ, you've got to give it a go. But Let it be drawn away, but I think the differences in Christ do not cause it to happen. If you can't help it, that's one thing, but do not cause it because this is different.
0: All right, and the thing is, is, like like you're saying, this this fits. This is a situation they couldn't. You know, being it's only twenty twenty five years out, like Niner was pointing out. This is a situation that happens when you have a church that's growing very quickly, and you're bringing in people who didn't grow up thinking about who they were going to marry, marrying the Lord. They weren't in the Lord themselves, right? It does seem like the implication is here: marrying the Lord it makes so many things easier, right? Which is why he tells, you know, if you're if you're widowed, marrying the Lord. In in Corinthians nine five, Paul says, "Did I not have a right to take a sister? So presumably, sister in Christ, and right."
1: Or so there's a, when we, when we have a marriage, there's a boundary between the husband and the wife. There's also a boundary between the husband the husband and the wife in the community. They're, they're, they're marrying as much to each other as they are to the community. It's a different battle, right? We vow to forsake a certain
7: person or anyone else, right? We have, we, we've made a vow to have one and to forsake everybody else, and they're supposed to make that vow you lose the other side of that. You've got this married couple in isolation, which is just a toxic problem. That kid just can't exist. And so I think it's something Paul's kind of pointing out about it. You've got to have the other side of this marriage. you not just to have two
0: people and Yeah, to your point, that was one of the things I was looking into too. To what degree was society's expectations Affecting this, and because I read, and it wasn't even specifically for First Corinthians, but just books on on Greco-Roman views on sexuality and marriage, and that was one of the things that came up was that they had views on this, and it was like that you were supposed to compromise to hold that way, that marriage together. Which, if you think about it, then it makes more sense, maybe, why they were struggling with some of this. Yes. I feel like I should start um, by saying I love marriage. Oh, this is gonna be a good one. <laughs> I 100% agree with you, which is why on Sunday we're going to talk about the gift of singleness. I, and and I'm, I'm the same way, because I'm married, so this makes this, you know, here be dragons kind of thing, is that I'm surprised I didn't think more about being single as a kid. I just didn't think that was an option. We're just supposed to get married. That's what good Christians do. We were told, see, the men were told something else, which is that, well, you know, at one point, you might be able to be an elder, and you have to be married to be an elder, so therefore you should be married. Well... Uh, read chapter 7 because Paul says singleness is actually we preferred, and I agree with you that I think women have it harder because it's almost like you meet somebody you know and they're I'm not going to mention an age because then I'll really get myself in trouble but you meet somebody who's single and it's all, uh, who's a female and there's almost like this implication that people have is like well what did, some man didn't want you yeah you know you know who wanted her Christ Okay? That's how this works. So, but, so I think women have more of a pressure to somehow get married. Unfortunately, in the church, it's sometimes the fault, at fault in that. Yes? i was just point out that
7: if you never told anybody to be alone, that was not, that was not a man. Single is different
0: than alone. Yes. <laughs> I think there are myths we believe about singleness, and that's part of the problem. Boy, we are already covering uh, next Sunday. That's okay. Okay, we got two minutes. I don't think we actually covered this one a whole lot, did we? Maybe? Okay, so what can we... Why does Paul distinguish between these things? Is there something that we can take away from the fact... This goes back to Mike Shepard's question and Mitch's question. About the fact that he distinguishes very clearly about the things where there's a command, a very specific command from Jesus... One where he has a judgment without a command, and then he says his concessions. Maybe you could say an opinion in that case. What are y'all thoughts on that?
3: <laughs>
0: he keeps reading it. <laughs> I have forty-nine minutes. We got sixty seconds, buddy. <laughs> All right. I guess that's the second vote, right? <gasps> Okay. This this better be good Raymond. He's gonna he's gonna wrap it up tight in the bow. Okay, so on Wednesday, we're going to talk about, we're going to do the topical lesson on making sense out of sex and gender. I want to give you one thing to think about for one of the questions, which was that, there's a question in there that says that the Bible opens with a a marriage, and it ends with a marriage, with the, the ending one being with Christ and the church. Think about, the way to think about that is think about how the metaphor of marriage is used throughout the Bible to tell us about our relationship with God. Because there are entire Old Testament books that are based on that. If you think about that, you'll find a lot of stuff to talk about. Thank you
5: all.